HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. That's right. It's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we have a very special guest. I am delighted to introduce Twilight Greenaway, who is the managing editor of Civil Eats, one of my very, very favorite publications. Um, Her articles about food and farming have appeared in the New York Times, uh, on NPR.org, The Guardian, Take Part, Modern Farmer, Gastronomica, and on Grist, where she served as the food editor from 2011 to 2012. You can also read more of Twilight's work and learn more about her at twilightgreenaway.com and at twilight at civileats.com. Um, Twilight, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on. I consider you a true thought leader in the progressive food movement. So um, I'm really happy that you were able to join me today. Thank you for having me, Katie. I am really happy to be here as well. And happy Martin Luther King Day. Oh, thank you. Same to you, my darling. How come your kid had to school, go to school today? Isn't it, or is he too little oh, well, to have? He, he goes to a he goes to a preschool school. So preschool, yeah. He's little still. So, he's yeah. very little. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Well, as I told you in the earlier exchange, I dropped my daughter off at college yesterday. <laughs> after I mean, she is, is a sophomore, but a big day. Yeah. Well, I mean, she it was you know after Christmas break and quite honestly, Twilight, a month of Christmas break with a twenty year old person uh, in a small New York apartment. <laughs> Yeah. It's really kind no of enough. <laughs> it's really kind of enough. You're not the only one I've heard uh, express that sentiment. But yeah, I'm sure it's uh, it's exhausting. Love having them home, love seeing them leave. But anyway, um, first of all, I want you to talk a little bit about Civil Eats in case I have listeners who are not familiar with the publication. Um, tell us a bit about it because I consider Civil Eats, you know, um, as again, as part of the sort of the thought leadership on progressive food. You guys publish articles that nobody else does. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of the, the editorial um, agenda for Civil Eats and what you guys are hoping to accomplish with it. Sure. So uh, Civil Eats 
has been around since 2009. It was founded by Naomi Starkman and Paula Crossfield, and it came out of the Slow Food Nation event that happened here in San Francisco at that time, which was a big gathering of folks um, from all around the food world talking about the way food is made and some policy issues and farming and um, really quite a range of of topics, and the blog for Slow Food Nation was very popular, and so Naomi and Paula, who'd been both involved in the blog, decided to spin it off and make it into its own site. And I've been working on it for the last two years, um, and we we are a daily online site. We do both our own original reporting. We do some news and some feature reporting. We report on the good news, the, the projects we think are really um, inspiring and are kind of moving the needle in terms of getting people to think critically about the food system and to make changes in the food system. And then we also publish some commentary, and we, we try to look at the kind of the story behind the story in many cases because we're not we're not always out there breaking news. We, we do do that on occasion, but um, since we are often a little behind the curve in terms of timing, we tend to go a little deeper and really look at why things are occurring and what are the various factors behind you know, various policy shifts and various corporate changes that occur. So, yeah, we're really trying to bring people who have some curiosity about food in a little deeper into where it comes from and who's making it and what are the complexities in the food system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I appreciate it enormously. I've been a supporter practically since the get-go. And um, I, you know, definitely pony up my money for a subscription, by the way, people. <laughs> Just in case listeners Thank out there, you. you know, like you can pay, you can buy this. It's very, very reasonable. I think it's twenty five dollars for a year subscription. Am I right? It is. Yeah. 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 I mean, we it just is added so the worth it. Feature a year ago, and it's it's been great. It's really uh, made a dent in our funding. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so we really appreciate that. It's and it is so so worthwhile. Even if you don't read it every day, you guys do a weekly roundup of food stories that I find invaluable. I mean, you know, enough. I mean, I don't mean to be like you know promote promote, but I mean promote promote because I mean, how many publications like yours exist? So let me ask you this, my darling. Um, in the past year, we've seen a lot of big stories emerge uh, in the progressive, you know, what I call the progressive food movement. Um, what, what do you think were the biggest stories that, that came out? Was it, uh, you know, the fact that labor is finally, you know, farm workers and restaurant workers are finally getting some attention, for example? Or um, was it more about environmental issues associated with our agricultural policies? Where did you see the big the big stories um, that were even like penetrating beyond civil elites and grist and into mainstream? Absolutely. I'd say there are quite a few, so I'll just list a couple, um, but this is by no means an exhaustive list. Um, I think the the growing awareness around pesticides and the um, mm. some of the large international decisions that were made to, to classify some pesticides, um, particularly Roundup and 2,4-D as uh, carcinogenic and possibly carcinogenic. Um, I don't know if you heard about that, but oh, yeah. the, the WHO's International Agency Research on Cancer uh, declared Roundup as probably carcinogenic and 2,4-D as possibly. And that was that was big news, really, uh, yeah. all around the, the media. It was reported far and wide and, you know, it was disputed and discussed quite a bit. Um, but it was definitely, I'd say it was... Uh, 
likely a factor in the fact that the EPA withdrew its approval of the new herbicide Enlist Duo, which combines glyphosate and 2,4-D. Uh-huh. So that was, I think that that was pretty big news. And then here in Dece- in sorry, in California in December, um, that was followed by an interesting sort of move by the state to look at atrazine, which is another very popular pesticide. Mm-hmm. I should be clear that these are these are all the most popular pesticides. These are the particularly Roundup and atrazine, very popular. Yeah. Um, so they're they're showing up on farm fields all over the country and really all over the world. So the fact that the WHO weighed in and um, really was discussing this this issue at this top level was a big deal. I, I think that was one of our one of the big news stories of the year. I would agree, um, yeah. That, and and I think huge. it will continue to be discussed. Um, so that was big. Twilight, um, um, I also think some of the... Yes? I'm sorry, I was just going just to, just to stay on that topic for one second. Have sure. there been, like in the world, when the World Health Organization came out with those statements of possibly and probably carcinogenic with relation to those mm-hmm. two popular pesticides, um, were there studies of uh, cancer populations um, that were primarily field workers or, or food workers um, that propelled them to make those statements? Or were these independent uh, scientific peer-reviewed studies on just sort of the, the molecular makeup of these, of these pesticides that could conceivably cause cancer in laboratory animals and there was no sort of extrapolation to human populations? Where, where did that end up? Do you know? They are, they are looking at... As far as I know, they're looking primarily at um, at rats and at the the impacts mm-hmm. on rats. Um, but they looked the WHO looked at, at a lot of different studies. They didn't just look at you know one or five. They looked mm-hmm. at really the existing scientific literature and felt that they could make make the probable statement about Roundup. I mean, wow. a number of folks have argued that. Just about everything causes cancer these days, and that you know that is that's worth discussing. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of things that are cancerous, but I don't know that that makes it less important. Oh no, I don't think so at all. Anyway, keep going. You you had another one on your on your oh, list there. Well, Sorry, I, I interrupted. Say, no, there, there isn't a lot of science on humans, as you know, because it's not something that anyone would want to willingly. It's not a. a Right, but they haven't observed—they <laughs> haven't observed um, cancer there is, clusters. You're right, there is some scientists science about farm workers, and we did actually we, we ran a piece recently, a few months back, about how complex that can be, in particular with children. Um, sure. Looking at at exposure to to pesticides on food versus exposure in the air, and if you're living nearby. So, I think um, I do think that that is a, an issue issue that's popping up for people that's becoming more important. The fact that pesticide isn't just about what's on the consumer's food, but that it does have a, a much um, much more sort of wide-reaching impact on communities and on people who work on in the farm field. Right, right. So, um, and what else did you see as a big story? I mean, to me, the, the minimum wage story was a big story for, for restaurant workers, for fast food workers. Would you say that was one of your top ten, or is there something else that you Absolutely. think trumps that? Absolutely. I mean, I think the restaurant labor piece is very complicated, um, and, but I do think the fact that the workers have been so vocal for the last several years yes. is, is definitely a top story. Um, I think in restaurants it's been really interesting to see so many restaurant owners shift away from tipping. Here in California, mm-hmm. particularly in the Bay Area, we've had a number of folks. I worked on a piece about this this summer. Um, a number of folks moving to a no-tipping policy as a way to 
to move the money around in a sort of a more equal way among employees so that it's not as simple as front of the house workers who are often the white folks to be honest Mm -hmm. um not as simple as them making the bulk of the money in the back of the house making almost nothing so that i think is another big shift that um the progressive restaurant industry is starting to to embrace yeah. Oh, yeah. We see that here on the East Coast as well. A lot of the big restaurateurs mm-hmm. are moving away from a tipping prop toward a yes, tip. No tipping. Myers. Yeah. And exactly. Really, really high profile profile people. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, those are not the restaurant workers who, um, you know. I, I mean, I don't know what he's paying his cooks, but um, you know, front of the house generally because the size of the check is so big, they're probably doing okay. But where I think about, um, you know, where where a no tipping policy really needs to be implemented is in the fast casual. Um, category like Applebee's or um, Mm -hmm. Olive Garden or, you know, some of those big um, like Darden chains and, uh, you know, that that uh, that do pay minimum wage and where the checks are small and people are just not making enough money, period. But sure. Yes. I I mean, yes. I'd like to see more of that. Restaurants were were in states where the minimum wage caught up and where the tips minimum wage caught up. Um, I, to a living wage, I think that that would be possible. I think it's tricky because we still have a tipped minimum wage of what is it? The federal one is still two ten. I yeah. mean, there are a number of states that that pay more for for tipped workers, but but that's just very low, as we know. So, yeah, <laughs> they're still relying on tips in most of those establishments. Yeah, yeah. So, what else did you see as a big story? What about in like just agricultural policy, like USDA? Anything come out of the USDA that that tickled your fancy? Um, well, one thing I was going to say is um, I do think that the the fact that so many large companies are moving, um, they're are changing their practices, and it can be really tricky to tell, you know, how what kind of impact they will have. But I do think that the the cage free story this year has been big. There's a yes. lot of really large food producers moving to cage free eggs. Um, that's really something that's gotten a lot of mainstream coverage and. We're really going to see over the next five years the the impacts of that. Um, similarly, the the fact that Campbell's just moved to granted this happened in the beginning of 2016, but Campbell's just moved to label genetically engineered ingredients, and that a number of big companies are just rejiggering their ingredients. Period. I think is a mm-hmm. is a really big ongoing story um, in terms of the. The policy world. Um, I mean, I think I honestly think that, that the FDA has done more this in the last year or not done <laughs> things that are newsworthy um, more so than the USDA. The USDA often, I would say, they I feel like there's a real kind of nose to the grindstone. You know, folks at the USDA, are, they are getting things done, but it's, it's often much less visible. I mean, the, the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food effort is still, it's still around. Um, and they're, they're making change on this kind of small consistent level that I, I'm often really uh, appreciative of. But, yeah, I didn't see really large headlines about the USDA this year. Did you? Am I missing something? No, no. I mean, I you know, they, they pay a lot of lip service to um, how much money they've pumped into farmers' markets, and that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yeah. that's also a reflection of consumer values turning away from conventionally produced food and into um, 
you know, into food that they feel is literally safer for them um, for some of the yeah. reasons we've just discussed. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know whether to credit the USDA with that or whether to say, well, they're just following the lead. I don't know. Um, the other places that I, I feel that I, I do feel you're right about the FDA um, being sort of more the one that uh, have they done anything? They're like, really at the center of the action right now. Yeah, it in is. A lot of ways. <laughs> and yet at the same time, like they haven't really, uh, you know, a few years ago two what is it? Three years ago now when they passed the, um, those guidelines about antibiotic use. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there was, there was no teeth in that act. There was no, I mean, it wasn't an act. It was just guidelines. And indeed we have seen, um, the increase of use of, uh, antibiotics in the food chain um, by about 25%. And so I yeah. don't know whether you can account for that as just we have larger herds. I don't know if that's true or whether the animals are being raised to bigger sizes and they require more antibiotics. That I don't really know, although I should since I'm writing a book about that stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, But uh, whatever it is, the, the FDA has completely and abjectly failed uh, to curb the use of antibiotics in our food chain. Um, and, you know, the other countries around the world who also produce meat uh, are watching very closely to see what happens and you know european union we can count on but the rest of the world mm-mm, not at all um yeah i was going to bring up antibiotics too i do think it's it is a big ongoing story although yeah. there weren't i mean i think that this year the big story was the fact that the obama administration kind of got involved and put out their plan but they also as you know they didn't really address farming in the way that they could have or someone say should have. And I mean, we finally just got uh, funding for the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was signed into law in 2011. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you haven't really seen a lot of that unroll yet either. You know, like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's very discouraging that these, you know, they pay lip service to these trends or or whatever you want to call them, these movements. And then, um, you know, the, the progress is glacial at best. Um, So I don't know. I think... I think that uh, a lot more activism is required on the part of consumers using their dollars to vote for what they want in their food supply. Um, What about trends in how people think about food? Like when you, you know, when you react with your readers or get letters to the editor or, you know, however that, you know, comments on your, on your stories, how how do you feel consumers are reacting to these stories about food and how much do you think they're changing their buying habits as a result? Well, I think that there's, there really is this increasing interest continues to increase um, in the way that food is made and where it comes from and how it's made. Um, but I also think that there, as much as people want transparency and labeling, I think that a lot of consumers are really conflicted because we know that the, the, our wages are stagnating, right? Mm-hmm. So as much as I think people would like, and a growing number of people would like to be able to vote with their dollars, their dollars are limited. So I think that yeah. that puts a lot of consumers in a real bind, and we hear that from quite a few people that... You know, the access issue is really big, that the mm-hmm. that affording enough fruits and vegetables, let alone um, trying to source them from local farms, is it's challenging on a day-to-day basis, I believe, for a lot of Americans. Um, yeah. And I think there's also a little bit of, you know, because we have these very large companies producing the bulk of our food, and then we have a small number of small companies and small farms, and I personally feel like they're doing really great work, but for the most part, they have to charge often twice as much you sure. know, as the, the big companies. And I think that consumers are 
are baffled by that difference, and most of them don't fully understand the externalized cost piece. And so I think I think there's a little bit of a backlash going on right now as well about artisanal food and local food and um, some of the fetishization that goes on with those pieces as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and, and especially the use of the word fetishization, because, I mean, honestly... <laughs> Well, anyway, I'm, I'm editorializing as usual. <laughs> I'm not supposed to it's do your that, show. but go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do, I do personally find, um, you know, sort of the tweeness of it all uh, something that has turned me off literally from the get go. And I've always been of the opinion that if you don't, um, you know, push this into the mainstream and onto, you know, mainstream production. Uh, you're really just going to end up with a total, with a separate food system, which I think is what we have now. I think we have a food system that works for people with more money, um, and more education. Uh And then we have the food system for the rest of us. And, and that's, that's where I see the great failure of the progressive food movement is to have divided, uh, into sort of silos so that, you know, to, to sort of avoid engaging with the mainstream people and, um, unpleasant as they may be, or as scary as they may be, or as clueless as most of them are, quite frankly. Um, you know, it's, the, the process of engagement is the only way that this will move forward on a mainstream level. In my opinion, I've always been, um, um, you know, quite um, anxious to, to let say the meat industry come on my show and talk about what they do well, because they do a lot of things well, even though most of us kind of hate what they do. Um, but we have really cheap meat, you know, and it's like a lot of people really appreciate that, especially, you know, I did a cost, a little cost analysis, Twilight. I'm sorry, I'm taking over this show here, but I, I wanted to say to you, and I thought this would be an statistic everyone would enjoy, but ounce for ounce, a pack of Doritos is uh, more costly than a pound of ground meat or mm. pork. That's ground beef or pork. But it doesn't surprise me. Right? It's 40 cents an ounce for Doritos. And mm-hmm. it is less than 40 cents an ounce for a, for a pound of ground meat. Pretty mm-hmm. interesting statistic. I don't know. And they get all those subsidies. Anyway, to move on, my dear, to move on. I'm sorry. I'm like, you know, taking over. I wanted, I wanted to get, you know, people talk about food policy all the time. What does food policy mean? Tell us what that is. You know, let's get a. You know what I mean? It's like it's something that gets thrown out sure. there all the time. It's like, sure. well, what I mean, the hell I, are we talking about? I, have, I mean, I really have sort of two ways of thinking about that term, and one is the really literal form of food policy, which is that there are quite a few lawmakers proposing policy all around the country that um, policies that mm-hmm. can change farming and change uh, the way people consume food and change the way people buy food. I mean. A few examples. Uh, we reported last week on a soda labeling bill mm-hmm. that has been it has been proposed and then killed and proposed and then killed here in California. And there was some inertia or some sorry some momentum building around the bill again this year, and it just got killed. Or well, it it more or less died before making it out into the the world because right. there were a certain number of lawmakers who were abstaining from voting on it. Um, wow. So that that's an interesting example of like a, a very specific, it's state level, but it, it proponents argued that it could have had a pretty serious impact on soda consumption. And there were a few studies mm-hmm. that came out just this month about the number of consumers who said that they would think seriously and in many cases wouldn't buy soda for their children if they saw warning labels on the bottles. 
So there is some hard science to support this policy as a you know as a good idea for public health, but right. um, the soda lobby gave quite a lot of money to um, to lawmakers and or I should say the soda industry because yeah. they don't see themselves as a lot lobby, but many people do. Well, it's um, the American so that, Beverage that's Association. That's just one sort of recent yeah. example of like some actual concrete policies and how it was impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are also some positive policies that pop up here and there. Here in California, we um, our cap-and-trade law has been in effect for a little while now, and there's some some big decision-making about where that money will go, and it's looking like Jerry Brown wants to put some of that back into climate-friendly agriculture. What uh-huh. that will really look like, I'm not sure yet. We're working on a piece about it right now, but it's promising, right? And that is that is ha- happening at the policy level. If, if that money goes back in, if that money is going to be the product of taxes um, levied on larger corporations that are emitting a lot of greenhouse gases, and it goes back into farmer into farmers' budgets, and they can sort of build their soil better, or they can work to build carbon sinks on their farm in various ways. I think right. that um, that's a really good example of some positive farm policy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I interviewed. Um, but I also think. Oh. That, that the word food policy or the term food policy ha- gets tossed around um, to mean, or is used often to mean food issues, food news, food, the way that people talk about food that's not just culinary, right? So yeah. I will often say that I'm a food policy writer, and that doesn't mean that everything I cover is policy exactly. I may cover what corporations are doing. I may cover what scientists are talking about. I may look at um, something like the WHO, and that's that's not exactly policy as so much as it is science and recommendations and so mm-hmm. that you know it's but it is often shorthand for the nitty gritty yeah yeah i think that people have a lot of questions around that like you know they don't understand whether you know agricultural subsidies is that food policy is it um you know, is that food policy? Do people see agricultural subsidies as part of food policy? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of of sort of um, confusion around what is uh, sort of what we can do, what, we, what kinds of changes can be affected at a legislative level versus what kinds of changes can be affected at a consumer or societal level. And that's that's where I think there's sort of the disconnect around what food policy means um, mm-hmm. and why and I then, asked and you then that. And the corporate <laughs> level, I think, is also where a lot of people are trying to levy the power because I think that yeah. the, um, they're hitting a wall with policy and policymakers. And so they say, let's just go directly to companies to see if they'll mm-hmm. change their practices as a way to get you know, more positive PR. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I do think that's happening a lot. And I think there are lots of organizations who are out there like As You Sow or Ceres um, who are in the business of examining um, corporate policy as it relates to food and then uh, putting pressure on either the corporate, uh, you know, structure itself or on shareholders to try to push them into doing things that are potentially beneficial to their bottom line at the end, like not ignoring climate mm-hmm. change, for example. <laughs> Right. <laughs> anyway, we should take a short break, unfortunately. Um, and then we'll be right back with Twilight Greenaway, uh, the managing editor of Civil Eats, for more about um, what we've talked about in the past couple of weeks here. And that is national food policy for the 21st century and the plate of the union. So stay tuned for more with Twilight.
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. You recently, oh, sorry, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm Katie Kiefer. I'm sorry. I'm like so excited about this discussion with Twilight Greenaway, my guest from Civil Eats. Um, I wanted to get right into the next question, which is, because we don't have that much time, unfortunately, um, which is that um, you and your colleague Steve Holt recently wrote an article for Civil Eats about um, the plate of the union, which was um, something put out by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And um, Ricardo Salvador, who was a guest on this show a few weeks ago, um, talked about it. And and you mentioned, um, you know, sort of the top five concerns uh, that are addressed uh, in the, or that for people who were asked questions about what they thought about something like the plate of the union or something like uh, the white paper on um, national food policy for the 21st century. Um, tell us a little bit about the top five concerns and, and you know, why those were the ones that, you, that really sprang out to you in a host of many, many issues. Sure. So that, that article was uh, specifically reporting on some polling that was done by Food Policy Action and the Union of Concerned Scientists um, and the HEAL Coalition, and they're all working together, as you said, on the Plate of the Union campaign. So what they did is they talked with Americans about food, and they talked with them for quite a while. And it was the kind of thing where folks who may not have come out and said, you know, I'm really concerned about food in America, when they actually started to talk about it, they identified... um, several very specific things that they, they did turn that turned out they wanted to see changed. Right. Um, and the biggest one, and this doesn't surprise me at all, and I'm glad that they're highlighting it, is, is access to healthy food. The fact, as we were discussing earlier, that so many Americans can identify what's healthy and maybe even crave it, but they don't have the resources to, to buy it a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So Either they don't have the, the resources? the number one... Yeah, or it's simply not available in their area, right? right. Isn't that part That's of the true. access issue? Yes, absolutely. That's mm-hmm. a big part of the access issue. I mean, I think um, the fact that, whether you want to call them food deserts or not, but the fact that so many neighborhoods in America, you know, really lack uh, a good grocery store um, or a good farmer's market or places to buy healthy food is a huge part of that equation, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, access was was a big part of it, um, and then the the growing rates of diabetes and other diet related illnesses, in particular how they affect children, was a huge concern yeah. for most people, as as well it should be. Um, and then um, people were also very uh, showed concern about the fact that so many workers in the food system are as we as we started to discuss earlier, really getting kind of a raw deal. Um, the people who are producing our food are in some of the worst jobs in America in terms of lack of decent pay and lack of benefits. And that is something that Americans, it turns out, think is a problem and would like to see politicians change. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, the fact that so many of our, our farm subsidies are going to produce um, commodity crops and not necessarily uh, helping Farmers produce healthy fruits and vegetables and other healthy crops 
um, that's another concern. And then right. um, they also they also ranked the environment and concern about the fact that farming often has a negative effect on the environment. They ranked that a little higher than they would have expected. I mean, it wasn't as big of a concern as food access, but it was it was on the list. It was something people did say they thought was a problem. So these are issues that that really any lawmaker, but in particular the presidential candidates, could pick up and probably get some traction out of. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, I mean, to that end, let us let us proceed immediately to um, one of my main questions of the day for you, my thought leading friend. Um, what would you see as the main political planks if a Democratic, if any candidate, any presidential, or even any legislative candidate were to incorporate a food into their campaign? What would be the top planks that you would like to see as part of that campaign? Did I make that? Is that clear? Yeah. Sure. I mean, because, you know, I'm more in a journalism role, I, I yeah, won't but- say that... I have my own personal agenda here, but I, I do think that if we look closely at what's happening, um, you know, even in the debate last night, that the the fact that so many politicians are already talking about income inequality and that food is, in my mind, one of the most literal examples of income inequality, mm. um, to me, that's, that's a little bit of a no-brainer. I'm not sure why there isn't more work to weave those two issues together. Um, because as you were saying, there is a certain percentage of the population who can afford to shop at Whole Foods and the farmer's market, and then there is a very large percentage of the population that doesn't. So I do think that, in a way, it's not even its own issue, right? It's <laughs> yeah. In, in that regard, food is just a very, uh, I would say, a really blatant example of income inequality. Most definitely. Um, so that... So that strikes me as some of the low-hanging fruit. Um, I think, you know, engaging people around farm policy, (laughs) if you're you're working towards a primary in a farm state, is very challenging. So I understand why that hasn't come up. Um, I think that particularly if you're Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, um, you're probably treading lightly Mm. in that area right now. but obviously those issues are important um, when we talk about the way that our USDA dollars are spent. Um, and as you pointed out, uh, Colin Bittman and Ricardo Salvador have all addressed this. Um, there's kind of a disconnect between the amount of commodity crops, so wheat, corn, uh, soybeans, cotton, rice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a disconnect between the amount of, of money that we're spending to make sure that those farmers can, can farm those crops at this very large scale and then the fact that we're subsidizing, um, well, it's a different type of subsidized food, but we're providing SNAP benefits for consumers and that most of those folks would like to be eating or, or would benefit from eating other kinds of food. So, Besides um, corn and I soy? Think- <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no kidding. Besides, <laughs> and besides, besides the animal products that are right, created right, by right. the corn and soy, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's yeah. a huge piece of it. Man does not um, live by meat alone, <laughs> much as they would like to think that we do. I mean, I, I find that an incredible part of the whole program. I mean, that's your, that's your cheap ground beef, right? Is oh, the, yeah. The subsidized corn and soy. You betcha. Absolutely. If, you didn't, if we didn't have that, it would be a very different equation. Oh, most definitely. Um, we are, you know, just 
killing ourselves to grow these crops. But we don't, it's not just for us. It's because we are selling them in enormous quantities to China, which cannot mm-hmm. at the moment fulfill their own feed requirements for their own livestock. And it's pretty much across the board. I mean, everybody's buying it. So um, mm-hmm. what else? What about something like, um, like I would like to see as a political plank, um, something that addresses the the fact that uh, companies like energy companies, and this goes really across the board of manufacturing as well as into the agricultural sector, but the the fact that that consumers pay the externalities, that mm-hmm. environmental impacts of so many industries are being absorbed by the consumer in terms of by the taxpayer, I should say. So, for instance, the Flint, Michigan scandal right now um, is a great example of that. But at the same time, we have a very similar situation that comes from agriculture as opposed to car factories. And that's what happened is happening in Des Moines right now, where the Des Moines Waterworks is suing the upriver counties because of the pollution coming downstream. And the same is true in Toledo, which lost a lot of their water Mm -hmm. quality issues from pollution in Lake Erie for the same reason, Chesapeake Bay and on and on. That's a political plank that I would really love to see is somehow mm-hmm. make mandate that those companies are paying the true costs of doing business. That would be my favorite mm-hmm. one. <laughs> I mean, I did talk to somebody to uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island about he has introduced legislation about a carbon fee, not a tax and trade, but but a uh, mm-hmm. carbon fee that would allow um, states to clean up their stuff that would come directly from those co- from those organizations. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. um, what do you, let's let's what else do you before we move on from that topic? What else do you see as as a political plank that would be like a feasible something that Americans could understand um, and that you know candidates could get behind? What else do you see as something that would have an impact? on an election cycle? If it's not this one, then the next one. This is all very tricky, and I think there's a reason why we're not seeing it happening. <laughs> um, but I do think... Yeah, let's, let's pie in the sky. That, pie in the sky. Just make it up. Whatever yeah. you think. Um, I do think that, that, you know, the connection between food and health is the other really big one. Ah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but you. the fact that there's so much discussion around... Um, insurance and Obamacare and mm-hmm. what happened with that or what hasn't happened with that. And I think, um, the, I think you know, Obama spoke a lot more about food in many ways before he was elected than he has since yeah. taking office. And I, I mean, I, I think Michelle Obama has done some really great work, but I do think that there could be a lot more done to tie uh, diet-related illness and uh, the enormous cost that we're, of enormous cost of diet-related illness. Yeah. So, so relate so public health. As taxpayers and then yeah. as individuals, um, I think there can be a lot more to tie that to um, healthcare and our larger discussion about healthcare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think that's a great plank. Twilight, I think that's like the plank, actually. That could be one of the major, <laughs> major... I mean, really, if you think about it, if you tie public health uh, to agricultural subsidies, then I guarantee you stuff would change. I mean, insurance companies would change their policy. I mean, it would really make a big difference. I remember Michael Pollan writing about that a few years ago, and I was like, wow, you know, like if insurance companies really took, paid more attention to how the impact of food policy on public health, I think there would be a lot of push pushback from the insurance company in terms of all of those subsidies, et cetera. They would be saying like, well, why aren't we getting that? You know, like. <laughs> sure. And or, I mean, I think if you look at, at Europe where, um, 
where governments care a lot more about keeping people healthy yeah. because they are footing the bill, yeah. um, you see a very different scenario, right? Yes. So if, <laughs> if um, it wasn't quite as privatized as it is, we could see a, a different equation as well. Yeah, very interesting. And then um, um, since we only have a few minutes left, I want to just ask you, why do you think the mainstream media ignores, largely ignores these topics? What do you think that is? Yeah, I think, As I a think journalist, on that. what do you I think? I think that there are quite a few efforts to uh, really go deeper on food in the mainstream media recently. I've been very impressed that, you know, we, Civil Eats, started out covering a lot of these issues in a little bit of a vacuum, and now mm-hmm. we're really competing with the mainstream media on a lot of the same stories. Hmm. Um, NPR has done a really good job. I think the fact that MSNBC is um, has been working with Tom Colicchio and the fact that um, Sam Cass is working with NBC to develop more food and food policy-related content. I think this is all—it's um, all really promising. I agree. So that I is mean, promising. I, I think that policy, policy in general, is—it's tricky stuff from a media perspective because it's—it's it's eye glazing for a lot of readers. <laughs> so there's that. You know, it's never yeah. going to be—it's never going to be super sexy. But I also think that. Um, there are a number of media sources, big and small, finding ways to tell these really interesting stories that can kind of bring the food on people's plate alive. And I'm really, I'm really uh, inspired daily by the pitches I get from writers, you know, people mm-hmm. who may not have policy backgrounds and may not be, um, they may, many of them are coming from the mainstream media. They may not be engaged in the food movement, but they are increasingly you know, just curious about this stuff and wanting to get yeah. down to some of the nitty gritty. Well, that's very encouraging. I, I love to end a show on a positive note like that, Twilight. Thank you very much. Good. <laughs> and, I, and I have to agree with you. Like, I, I hadn't really been thinking about Tom Colicchio because, I mean, after all, what's happened? Like, nothing has happened yet. You know, the food policy action, he doesn't have his own show for food policy action. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what I'd like him to see. I'd, I'd like to see him get that. Uh, I'd like to see Olivier de Shooter and, and, you know, Ricardo Salvador and Dom Colicchio and Michael Paul and all these guys, you know, get their, get their day in the sun in terms of like not being, um, you know, vilified as sort yeah. of elitist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I mean, if you look at, at, uh, Michael Pollan, that's an interesting example, right? Because we just had uh, the big PBS documentary about yep. his book, In Defense of Food, or based on his book, In Defense of Food. It really that's goes right. to a lot of places, I think, um, sort of taking off from his book. But that ran on PBS, right? And yeah. then we have one coming out, a series coming out based that's on right. Cooked, um, and that's going to be on Netflix. So that is quite a bit, or at least potentially quite a bit more mainstream. Wow. Yeah, it sure is. Well, I love that story. See, what a great little interview this has been. You see, you just you just made my day with those two statements. That you know, well, look at what's to, happening. We have to take the good news where we can get it, uh, right? <laughs> absolutely, and we can't just be you know back backpedaling on. Uh, well, anyway, we can't just be being naysayers about all of this. Um, I'm just impatient because I've been watching this stuff for quite a while, and it's just. Sure. You know, move yeah. along, move along. People get smart, you know, figure it out and start well, getting politicians and to involved. The USDA, one thing, one thing I wanted to say about the USDA that oh, is yeah. also positive. I know we don't have very much more time, but That's I had okay. a great conversation with um, Joe Leonard, who's their civil rights uh, secretary within the USDA. And, really? you know, he's really doing a lot of interesting work. We're going to run an interview with him in the next week or two. And 
he and his office are doing a lot of interesting work to kind of slowly turn this very large ship, you know, not not around entirely, right? <laughs> but to turn it towards inclusion for people of color. Mm-hmm. And they are working on a county level to get more involvement um, with farmers of color. They're working to give microloans. They're, you know, it's stuff that that's easy to overlook. None of it is very, again, very sexy. But I was very inspired hearing from him about the ways that they're really trying to change the relationship between the USDA and farmers of color. So that's another another positive one. And, you know, it's it's a really large agency, a lot of employees, a lot of bureaucracy. And so there's, you kind of have to take it slow and measured. But there are people in the USDA and outside of it working towards change on this gradual level that, you know, it's not always visible, but it's happening. Well, and then uh, we will um, we will conclude. And thank you very much. And um, I'm going to call that guy up myself and invite him onto the show. <laughs> Thanks for the yeah, steer, he's an honey. Interesting guy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, for people who want to learn more about Twilight uh, and Civil Eats, uh, CivilEats.com and TwilightGreenaway.com. Is that right, darling? Are you yeah, Twilight? but yeah. Civil Eats is really Civil Eats is your... most of my work as a parent. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, Civil exactly. and you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. We have a great social media stream where we're sharing a lot you of the food news, mainstream news as well as the smaller scale stuff. So yeah. please hook in and sign up for our newsletter and you'll learn a lot more really fast. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today and thank you to my sponsor, the International Culinary Center and thanks to my engineer, Liz. And I'll see you next uh, week or so and uh, I'll be reporting back about the International Processing and Packing Exposition in Atlanta (laughs) that I'm going to next week. I can hardly wait. So (laughs) thanks a lot for tuning in today, folks. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.